and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Glad to be here. And uh, looking forward to an, another ride here. You know, got the old lightning saddled up, and and uh, we got a good one today. We're going to cover a lot of ground today uh, and end up with, I think, what's going to be a pretty darn interesting uh, learning tree today with comparison to WWE to the 1976 territories. And I understand well, we got a, a big star coming to the territory today. So uh, so why don't we start off here? How are we going to start today, Ron? Okay. Uh, we're, gonna, we're actually entering the second week of January, 1976. And uh, you're right. We do have a new star coming in today, and he is a powerhouse. Sure enough, uh, he's massive. <laughs> he's extremely muscular, and I think that's been – He's built like a tank, I guess is even better. Professor Tora Tanaka. And I think one of the most impressive wrestlers that, that was alive in, back in those days. Uh, we'll talk about the first shocking impression he made on Southeastern fans. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about the card of January 11th, 1976, on a Sunday afternoon. Talk about the tremendous TV show before that card. The day before, as a matter of fact. Give the results of the 76, uh, January 11th, 76 card. Talk about the crowds and the payoffs for the entire week. At this point, we're up to about six nights a week. Uh, we're going to discuss the, my growing territory at this time and how it's so different from other territories. Talk about one new city in particular that never ran before. And uh, not by just Southeastern, but it's never actually been run by any wrestling companies. You think in 76, you couldn't find a place like that. But uh, I managed to do it somehow out of Knoxville. And uh, we're going to wrestle in that town. And as the wrestlers used to call those towns that have never had wrestling before, it's, it's a virgin town. We're, we're going to go into a town that's never had it, never seen wrestling before. We're going to discuss how and why I wanted to handle these new markets in a very special way. I didn't just want to, I had to. Uh, then we're going to sit under the learning tree again, uh, answer a great question that was sent to me that's going to compare the WWE's TV audience and the size of their crowds to the territories back in the 1976 timeframe. And I also want to thank all the listeners that have sent questions for the learning tree. 
and I'll do my best to get to them as soon as possible. I just have a tremendous uh, amount of questions that came in, and thank you all, all very much. Uh, before we get started today, Jeff, uh, I have a couple things I'd like to say to my Studcast fans. I know fans have enjoyed the actual audio clips from the interviews of Southeastern Wrestling TV shows back in 1975. We've been playing a few of them. We get those audio clips from the Hills Brothers out of Knoxville, Tennessee, that luckily, fortunately, they made uh, tapes of these. And uh, we reached a time frame here, and these guys were young back in those days, and they, they went to college. So I think fans are kind of asking me why we're not getting clips like we were before. Well, we happen to be in one of those little time frames in which these guys were in college. But in later in 1976, we're going to be back with these clips. And uh, they have sent me some stuff, and it's great stuff. It's with a tremendous number of different guys. And uh, we'll go, basically, I'm just letting fans know that they're going to come back again. We're going to have more of those clips. But we just happened to be in a little time frame here early in 76 in which they did not tape any shows. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing those again. And I uh, want my uh, fans out there to be patient with me. And, uh, and I really appreciate all the great comments that I have received about those things. So uh, I'm looking forward to just uh, taking her from there, Jeff. Okay, so Ron, why don't we start with Professor Toro Tanaka. You know, here's a guy that was able to make that transition after wrestling. Uh, just real quickly as I look, he was in movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, like The Running Man and The Last Action Hero. He was in Dark Man with Liam Neeson. He was in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He was in, uh, I think, one or two Chuck Norris movies. A guy that was really became a solid supporting sort of villainous actor. But what impressed you about Professor Toro Tanaka? Really, you know, basically, uh, and, and it, it seems strange, he was one of the classiest and nicest wrestlers I, I ever met. Uh, he was a tremendous guy. I met him in Memphis, Tennessee. I was working with him at, actually in a match. I was a Southern heavyweight champion and flew in there from Nashville, Knoxville, man, across the state. And uh, there I meet Tanaka. And uh, he's a pretty imposing figure for, for the first time you meet him. And just so the fans get a little information about him, uh, his real name was Charlie Kalani, uh, Jr., actually. He was born in Hawaii in 1930. He's about 5'11 and 280 pounds. Uh, he'd been a professional boxer as well as a wrestler, uh, which really surprised me. He played football, college football at Weber State. Even before it was Weber State was another name for that college at that time. Uh, he was a soldier in the 1950s and, and had made it as far as being a sergeant. He was a martial arts expert. Man, I mean, this guy was bad, you know. And uh, like you said, he, he was in movies. I think uh, I heard he was in 29 movies, he told me, you know. And uh, in a lot of those, you know, he, he, I thought he may be more than that. He was in a few of them before he got out of wrestling. And, uh, and then he was in a great number of them. And, and some of those you mentioned pretty amazing to me. So uh, yeah, he was discovered by, of all people, Roy Shires, the, the NWA promoter in San Francisco. Uh, he became famous, obviously, for Vince McMahon Sr. with WWF before it was WWE. And uh, when he has his second run with me, this is his first run now. He's going to leave and then he's going to come back and he's going to come back with Fuji. And uh, I'm going to end up having the former WWE World Tag Champions going to end up being Southeastern Tag Champions, too. 
I basically loved Charlie. I mean, he was a wonderful guy. And uh, and I wished I was a heel. I'd like to have been a heel because I could have spent a lot more time with him. Uh, you know, I, I had my wrestlers very much kayfabe, man. They, 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 I didn't, you didn't go places and hobnob with your heels with baby faces. It just was not done or you were, you're out of a job in my, my companies. But, you know, and I was never a big wine fan. What I remember about Charlie is, is he made homemade Hawaiian wine. And he, he told me about it the first time and, and he brought me some. And, I, you know, I, I wasn't a wine fan, but if I was ever going to drink wine, I would have been my wine. I mean, gee, my knee, it was really good. I always told him, you know, <laughs> he's about to make a wine drinker out of me. Uh, he died in the year 2000. And, uh, and later on this show, I'm going to tell a great story about his first appearance on Southeastern Wrestling that uh, I don't think has ever been told. And uh, for fans that's never seen this guy, I, I'd recommend you, if you want to take a look at him, he's on my website, tnstud.com. You can either go to the gallery page or you can go to the Studcast page and look for episode 130. But, uh, you know, we're going to get back talking to him late, about him later in the program today for sure. Okay, so Ron, what was the card on Sunday, January 11th, 1976? Okay, first match that afternoon. This is a Sunday afternoon. We're running in the afternoons. Dennis Hall against Superstar Number 2. It's the first of three Southeastern tournament matches that we're going to have that afternoon. And uh, this is the same Superstar Number 2, uh, Leon Baxter, who had the week before been wrestling Mike Stallings, and Mike Stallings had a really bad back injury in the match. And Baxter really showed his experience, man. He took care of the kid. He he actually beat him, uh, and he got something out of it because uh, he had hurt his back, and uh, and he put him in the Boston Crab to beat him. And, uh, you know, we talked about that in last week's uh, learning tree. So this time it's Dennis Hall and Superstar number two. Uh, they're both in the tournament. Next tournament match of that afternoon is Jimmy Golden versus Superstar number one. And he, Golden had a tournament win the week before over Carson when my brother got involved in it and cost Carson the victory. And then in the next match, Rob is wrestling one of the, this superstar, number one, and Carson comes back down and costs Rob to lose the match. So both Robert and Carson are out of the tournament at this point. Third match is another Southeastern tournament match, and it's the actual debut, live debut in an arena for Southeastern Wrestling for Tora Tanaka. And they call him Professor Tanaka lots of times, and that's the way we publicize him too. It was his first tournament match, and he's going to be wrestling Rocky Smith, who used to be the Mask Inferno, the one wearing the boot. Fourth match that day is Robert against Don Carson. I mean, they've had this problem uh, the week before. They've also had a problem, uh, Rob won, the Battle Royal and the Coliseum in November with Andre the Giant and you end up walking out with 3500 and uh, Carson's trying to get that money. They feuded over that money. Now they're feuding over the fact they've both knocked each other out of possibility of being the first Southeastern heavyweight champion. Main event was return match for the Tennessee Tag Championship. Uh, champions Austin, Norvell Austin, and Big Butch Malone, managed by Homer Odell. And uh, they're against Ron Wright and myself. And uh, Ron Wright's brother is going to be handcuffed to Homer Odell. 
So, you know, that's this one uh, pretty, got going to be wild. I mean, you start doing these handcuff deals, you never know what the heck's going to happen. So while we're on the subject, let's talk briefly about the TV on the day before, because we're running on Saturday afternoon. The television on Saturday is going to promote that card for the following day. And uh, in that opening TV match there, Homer Odell and his Tennessee tag champions, Austin and Malone, they destroyed the team in about five minutes. And then they came to the set with Les to watch the match from the Sunday before and also to talk about the upcoming tag match where Homer was going to be handcuffed to Don Wright. Homer complained about Don Wright attacking him the Sunday before and uh, saying that no man had a right to lay hands on him. And uh, that big old fat-faced, big-lipped Homer Odell, he really, he could get some heat. And he was really laying it down that, that, you know, not only can they not lay their hands on me, I don't, you know, he didn't want to be violated by being handcuffed like a criminal. And, uh, you know, he was complaining about it. So his boys put their arms around him. and They said, don't worry about it, Homer. As I best remember, it was a pretty good scene. And Don Wright, Don Wright won't be fighting you, Homer, because we're going to beat the hell out of him. And before it's over, you're going to be dragging him around behind you on the floor because he's going to be out cold. And Homer puffed up his big old fat lips and uh, looked over at Les and he said, I love him, boys. And uh, (laughs) they all hugged and the crowd in the studio, they didn't like it at all, obviously. And uh, they booed him off the set, basically. They came back two minutes later because they were supposed to do the interview. And they were laughing hysterically and mocking the crowd for booing them. And uh, this time they really made their point about promising to whip. They promised whip those two hillbillies, which was the two Wright brothers, and break that big old long-legged Ron Fuller's legs. So crowd didn't like that much either. In the second match, Robert Fuller, my brother, against Tony Peters. Rob beat him with the Fuller leg lock, my dad's hole. And then uh, Rob and Jimmy went to the desk with Les, and they watched the way Carson had interfered on the match the week before and how he got eliminated from the tournament. And uh, and it was a great video, man. It was one of those crowds that were really wild, and it sounded like 10,000 people, and it was really uh, just a little over 3,000. Rob wished Jimmy luck in his tournament match because Jimmy's still in the tournament, and he's wrestling superstar number one, and Les threw it to a commercial break. And they're both still there. Cameras came back because we didn't like to talk too much about the individual matches themselves in the general content of the program. So they had the chance in the interview and they verbally tore into Carson and his buddies, the superstars. Those, that pair, or the threesome of those guys, they're going to create some real havoc there. And uh, in the next few episodes, we'll be talking about uh, busting Ron Wright's eye and blacking his eye and Things they did were pretty darn crazy for back even in those times. Uh, so when Rob and Jimmy finished, uh, they left the set, and obviously the fans really loved it. Ron, let me Ron, ask you a quick question. Yeah. So we spoke uh, after we had finished recording last week, and I, and I remember to, to bring this up to you again as you were talking about uh, not just uh, at an arena, but especially on a television program. You're the promoter, and you, know, you mentioned guys like uh, Tony Peters. As a promoter, was it for you to have – quality TV enhancement guys. Extremely important. I mean, your television program is your very best form of advertising. Uh, You don't want to have bad workers on your television show. 
And, and you know, I'm going to be honest with you. This is my very first, I, my first wrestling company, and I've only been in it a year. Tony Peters is probably not one of the guys I would have used once I get to Pensacola. He's not top quality. But, you know, I'm struggling as a young promoter, and I don't have good talent yet. And I'm a growing company, and I use Tony Peters quite a bit. He was not one of the best. One of the names you mentioned before, I apologize for interrupting you, uh, was Rocky Smith, the former Inferno. Now, would he have been your uh, your top-line uh, enhancement oh, yeah. guy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he could have worked in the crew. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, he, 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 he had it all, you know. Uh, he was a little uh, past his prime, but he was still very good and had a great knowledge of the sport and how to get over and how to have a match. He, he could do it all. So, you, you know, and they both came from the same town, Kingsport, Tennessee. They both lived up there in the same town, Rocky Smith and Tony Peters. And Tony Peters had been trained by Ron Wright. So, you know, uh, you had all different kinds of guys that, that wanted to wrestle uh, for you. And, and you usually wouldn't put them on a card. You'd put them on your TV. And I think that's what a lot of promoters did is they stuck them on TVs when they really shouldn't have been there. Later on, as, as my company grows, you won't find Tony Peters on my TVs anymore. You'll find uh, quality guys. Uh, just as an example, Southeastern Wrestling out of Pensacola, one of my great job boys was Arn Anderson. <laughs> you know, so, so that's, I had, that's kind of rarefied air there. <laughs> there you go. I mean, you know, that when you've got that kind of kid that's, uh, that's got that future ahead of him, uh, you've got quality job boys on your TV. And that's, that's extremely important. Yeah. So, okay, next, personality profile, I think, was next. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to do the weekly personality profile. And this one, by golly, for fans that didn't get to watch it, uh, they really missed it. Uh, this one was tremendous. Uh, the star of the profile uh, is going to be the brand-new Southeastern Wrestling uh, Tour Tanaka. And uh, so, you know, he arrived late that day. Uh, we pre-recorded it, and about two hours before the show, we pre-recorded these personality profiles. And, and Les and I are wondering when he's going to show up. And when he comes in, we have no idea what he's got in mind, but he's got his wrestling gear on, and he's got three concrete blocks with him. And uh, so he, he, he looked great. I mean, you know, he's always looked great, and I hadn't seen him in a while. This is his very first day to show up, even before he wrestled on the live show the next day. And uh, the show's director and, uh, and a couple of the cameramen that are going to work the show later had come in early, and they were up in the control booth with me. And when he walked on camera, uh, they were like instantly blown away. They were like, oh, my goodness. Uh, and I think my director, whose name was Bill Kincaid, he, he turned to me and he said, uh, where'd you get this monster, Ron? You know, and like, wow, this guy, what's he all about? So he had these three, three blocks of four inch thick concrete blocks. And he went and set down two of them uh, standing upright and one across the two blocks. And he set them down in front of the chair in which he's going to be uh, doing the personality profile from. Less than him hadn't even had very few minutes to even talk. And Tanaka really didn't like to talk a whole lot. He always had managers, so he wasn't a talker. So uh, he sat down, he put his blocks, he set up his blocks, and he sat down in the chair. And uh, boom, they rolled the profile. And Les, you know, started asking him right away, you know, uh, right away he asked him about the blocks because that was unusual. He says, what, what are those blocks for? And, you know, and then he explained, he said, you know, uh, 
we don't, this personality profile isn't really designed to, to talk about wrestling. This is about to just talk about your, what you're into and uh, where you're from and your family and, you know, those type of things. So, uh, so he said, uh, what, what he says, uh, I hear for business. You know, he had, he had obviously the Oriental, the deep voice, and he had the Oriental accent naturally. And he, and he said, I hear for business. And uh, Les asked him, uh, well, okay. You know, he started off to do the profile like he always did. And he said, uh, well, uh, what, uh, what do you enjoy? Professor Tanaka, what, what is it you like? And he, he just looked at him and said, I hear for business. And Les says, oh, okay. Uh, well, I, I hear you've been in movies, you know, uh, wh what about that? And, uh, he just looked at Les and said, I hear for business. And they, this went on and on for two or three minutes, right? Uh, yeah. Les says, what kind of food do you eat? I hear for business. And it just, it was like, got to be almost a joke at the end there, you know, like, what, did, what is this all he's going to say? So Les tried everything, and uh, and he only kept getting that same response. So finally, after about three minutes and what's usually a five-minute profile, Les got frustrated. <laughs> and Les liked to take the show where he wanted it to go. He didn't, he didn't like the fact that, hey, I'm not getting him. He's not responding to me here. So, uh, so he says uh, to uh, Tanaka then, he says, well, you know, uh, what kind of business are you here for then? And uh, <laughs> the floor camera had a wide shot of the two of them and the chairs and the blocks, obviously, right in front of Tanaka. Tanaka glanced over at Les. He had a real ugly look on his face. And he said, I show you. And he just dropped down instantly on his knees in front of that block. And he smashed his forehead through that four-inch thick concrete block. Nobody knew what was going on. None of us had any idea what he was going to do. And uh, the pieces of the block just scattered and shot and flew across the concrete floor. Guys in the control room, <laughs> me and the director, they screamed and, and grabbed each other like it was a horror movie or something. Like, oh, my God, did you see what he did? And Les even jumped out of his chair because he wasn't expecting it either. And then the, the beauty of the whole deal happened then. Tanaka raised his head up. And a little trickle of blood was coming out of the middle of his forehead. It was starting to run down his forehead. The director was sitting next to me. He was frozen. It scared him, too. And I had to scream at him. I said, get a close-up. Get a close-up. Because he was back on a two-shot. And the camera came right in on him. And you could see that blood coming out of his head. And it trickled down his forehead and ran off his nose and dripped on the studio floor. I mean, everybody in that studio and up in that control room, they were speechless. And they, they were like, oh, my God, what is this all about? Uh, the director, you know, he, I told him, I said, cut it, cut, cut it off. Uh, you know, they, 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 they were so into it, they, the production people, that they had lost their whole concept of, hey, we're trying to make a program here. So it was, to me, the best thing I'd ever seen that I wasn't prepared for. You know, and uh, then Kincaid looked at me again. And he says, really, in a in a very solid voice, he goes, uh, "My God, Ron, what have you done? <laughs> like I brought this monster in there, you know." So, well, uh, the, my monster, if he was a monster, in three minutes he got over. I can tell you that that three minute profile, I loved it. And when they showed that profile back two hours later, when the crowd is in the studio. 
They reacted just the same as the people in that stu- up there in the control room with me and, and the cameraman and then Les, who jumped out of his chair. Uh, they just went nuts in the studio like, Jesus, did you see what he did? So it was exactly the type of thing I wanted in my wrestling shows and my TV. I mean, it was absolutely undisputable evidence that this is real, folks. You know, it, 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 there was no way that blood could have done that right in front of that camera. And, you know, I, I, right then I could see that my business is about to pick up with old professor here being here. So there was no break after the personality profile. Well, only a 10-second bumper before the next segment. So the bumper rolled around with a Greek statue that we used to use spinning around. And the studio people are still reacting to what they'd just seen. So the next shot that opens up, it's the announcer, Phil Rainey. He's in the ring with Rick Connors, and he announces Rick Connors. And the crowd is still buzzing about, like, God, did you see what happened? And uh, all of a sudden, out around the corner comes Tanaka into that studio live. I've never seen anything like this either. The crowd instantly went silent. It's like, what? oh, my God, there he is. <laughs> and I think they were so intimidated, they were afraid to boo him. You know, they were like, oh, my God, this guy's a beast. You know, he was introduced, the bell rang, and I mean, he sliced and diced that poor Rick Connors in less than two minutes. It was horrible. Crowd responded to everything he did, just like we were wrestling in Japan. Uh, every chop, every everything Tanaka did, the crowd was like, oh, oh, they were like, oh, gosh, oh. I mean, I loved it. It was unbelievable how he got over. So he goes straight to the set with Les after the match. And before Les can even say anything to him, Homer Odell burst right up on in front of the cameras. He's on set. And Les tries to stop him. He goes, hey, you've already had your time today, man. You've been out here already. You know, uh, you're not supposed to be out here. And Homer just, he just uh, doesn't pay any attention to Thatcher. He's just, he's just fixated on Tanaka. And he starts trying to convince Tanaka that I want to manage you. I want to manage you. I got to have you, man. What do I have to do? And Tanaka's like shaking his head. He doesn't understand, you know, what, the, what is this all about? Lesk has kept trying to control Homer. Like, you know, you, stop it, Homer. Get off the set. Tanaka didn't seem like he was too interested in it. And Homer reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a big wad of $100 bills. And he stuffs them into Tanaka's hand. And for the first time, that the people have seen Tanaka. This is the first time they've ever seen him anyway. For the first time in this show, Tanaka smiled. Homer threw his arm around Tanaka's shoulder, and he drug him right off the set. Les is standing there like, wait a minute. You know, he take my guy that I'm supposed to be interviewing, you know, and he has to apologize. Les goes, I'm sorry, folks. Uh, I don't know what's going on here, but, uh, you know, let's go to a commercial. And uh, so... Yeah, Homer became, you know, it was amazing, but uh, Homer became the mouthpiece of uh, one of the greatest American wrestlers ever, man, toward Tanaka, uh, just uh, right there on the set within uh, 30 seconds to a minute. So Don Carson and the superstars, they come out to the set before Les could even go to commercial. And they're laughing at Les for losing control of his show and making fun of him. You know, hey, you want to run this thing, boy? What's the matter? You can't stop that from going on. And 
You know, the fans hated those guys. Uh, so they're there about for two minutes, two-minute commercial time. And the camera comes back on them. Then Carson and his buddies, boy, they lit into the studio crowd. I'm, those three, especially Carson, were like heat-seeking missiles, man. They got heat. Wow. Superstars bragged about being so good that the two of them, out of the only remaining eight in the tournament, were, were probably going to end up having to wrestle each other. We're so much better than everybody else, right? Carson got a big laugh out of that one, and then he tore into Robert and his no-time limit, no-DQ match with him the next afternoon. And he boasted about how he was going to be able to use his peanut butter, and he stuck that black glove up in front of his face, and he goes, I'm going to be able to use it any way I want to. And he predicted that pretty boy's face is going to need plastic surgery when I get through with it about 24 hours from now. So fans hated those guys, and they booed them so loud. There was a lot of that interview you couldn't hear because they were booing so bad. Last match on the card, Ron Wright and myself. Don Wright escorted us ring. We wrestled, uh, I can't even remember who, but the crowd was really into it because the program had been so darn good. And uh, we got a quick win. We made the last interview about all hell breaking loose tomorrow afternoon. Uh, with Don being handcuffed to Homer Odell, and uh, we'd be leaving that building as the Tennessee Tag Champions, and we were going to go ahead and call ahead for three ambulances, one for Austin, one for Malone, and one for Homer. They were going to need it. And uh, it'd been a really remarkable TV show, and another one that I would have given anything today for fans to be able to see that program, especially to see Tanaka break that block with his forehead the way he did. Okay, so okay, Ron, so what happened the next day? Well, in the three Southeastern Championship tournament matches, superstar number two beat Dennis Hall. He advanced to the semifinals. Jimmy Golden won over superstar one. <laughs> he, he advanced to the final four in the tournament, too. The Tanaka tore Rocky Smith apart. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was he was in rare form. And Homer Odell went to the ring with him, man. <laughs> Homer had got the boy. He had got Tanaka to be his man. And uh, that was his debut match, Tanaka's debut match in Southeastern. And he won, and obviously, in advance to the Final Four as well. And then the only other guy left that's in this tournament is Ron Wright. Uh, Robert lost to Don Carson. The Tennessee Tag Championship match uh, with the champions Austin and Malone versus me and Ron Wright. With Homer handcuffed to Don Wright, finally had to be stopped after the champions got disqualified. And they got disqualified for a real good reason. Tanaka came down to ringside. He knocked Don Wright unconscious. He nailed the referee, took the keys for the handcuffs out of the referee's pocket, undid Homer. And uh, then the four of them, Austin Malone, Tanaka, and Homer, got on me and Ron Wright and left us pretty bloody. So uh, they fought their way back. Then they had a bigger fight on the way back to the dressing room by the fans in the building were trying to get them. I'm telling you, it was really dangerous in those days because we had people starting to believe. And uh, that's what it took to, to have those riots. Uh, they had to be really into it. Okay, so that week of January uh, 11th, 1976, what were the crowds like? We did about 3,500 uh, that Sunday afternoon. Uh, on Monday, we ran a high school gym in Kentucky called Whitley County High. It was about 100 miles northwest of Knoxville. It was in an area with such a small population 
that I couldn't find any town there. You know, I don't know how in the hell, where they were all out, where they lived, uh, uh, but it certainly didn't affect the size of the crowd. We couldn't get all the people that came into that gym, and they had a pretty decent-sized gym. It was over 2,000. It would seat over 2,000, I'm sure. And they probably turned away another 1,000 that couldn't get in there. That area, this is that town I talked, that virgin town that I spoke of earlier in the show. That area had never had a live wrestling match before. Uh, And it was about, like I said, 100 miles northwest of Knoxville. And we'll talk again later in the show about this town because it's one of the first we had gone to that was sold entirely out. So Tuesday, we ran uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, which we run in every Tuesday, about 1,600 people. Thursday is uh, on uh, National Guard Army in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, about 1,700. Uh, we've been going there for a while and adding new seats, and uh, we were filling that building up now. Friday, we went back to Harlan, Kentucky for the second time ever. This crowd was over 2,000 there, but that gym held 3,000. Saturday night, we went back to Morristown, Tennessee, about 50 miles outside of Knoxville, where we've been going every other Saturday, and that building was full. It was 2,000 people in that building, probably. It was a record week for Southeastern Wrestling early in 1976. We sold about 12,000 total tickets in that week for wrestling matches. Gosh, that probably was a record at that point uh, all time for, for, for one week. The ticket prices are still low at that time frame, uh, only about $3 a seat. But that's all going to change soon because these sellouts that we're going to start seeing I'm going to be able to pick those ticket prices up. Uh, if you're selling out, you can you can charge a little more. And uh, that's what uh, we're going to start doing. The gross for the week was about $36,000. Total payoffs were over 10000 close to 11000 Knoxville had the biggest card with 15 total guys on it. Include, that included the referee. And the other towns were about 13 guys on the card. The basic crew that wrestled every night that week was the referee, was there, same guy, Mac. Uh, superstars were there, Jimmy Golden, Dennis Hall, Norvell Austin, Butch Malone, Homer O'Dell, Tora Tanaka, Don Carson, my brother Rob, uh, Ron Wright, and myself. Uh, I had not been taking payoffs uh, in 74 and 75 because I wanted to, to get the guys more money, but we were beginning to turn the corner business-wise. And I began to take about half of what everybody else did. I think that's about what I did that week. And if you look closely at that crew, everybody in it's pretty much a top guy. And that's the way it's going to be going forward from 1976 in Knoxville. Southeastern is going to be the place for a lot of wrestlers to come. So I started to pay everybody just about the same because they all have the same talent level. It just depends on who's booked on top. The average payoff for this week for each of the guys, it was about $600. I looked that figure up to see what it was worth. In today's money, that was a $2,700 week in 1976 for those guys. Yeah, it's pretty obvious why I'm not now able to get a guy like Tor Tanaka. I mean, when you start uh, uh, being able to produce that kind of money, you're going to get some darn good talent. And in every business, as the territory gets larger, the money gets bigger, and the talent gets better. And, uh, you know, and that's a formula that just continues to reproduce itself. And that's what's beginning to happen in 1976 for Southeastern. Uh, Another way to put this in perspective, too, uh, 
a totally different part of the wrestling business. Uh, we had driven a total of 850 miles to work six shows that week. The guys in Florida Territory, as an example, would have driven way more than 2,000 to work six towns. Six towns. Okay, Ron, let's take a break here and go to David Summers as we discuss Super Sudcast number 25. Hey, Ron, I think you know the guy that's our guest this week. It's a guy named Ron Fuller. Yeah, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. You know, I think he knows something about hockey, too, or he learned something about hockey. He didn't know anything, but this will be a good one, uh, you know, for fans uh, out there. It's wrestling and hockey. Uh, this this is a combination of two sports because uh, that's uh, kind of uh, – I left wrestling. I got into hockey. I brought wrestling to hockey, and I changed hockey by doing that. And, uh, you know, that I think this is going to be an extremely interesting super stud cast for all fans out there. Okay, so let's go to David Summers now. Studcast fans and wrestling fans know the creative mind of Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Nashville, Tennessee got a taste of it on an October night in 1989 when his first minor league hockey team made history with not only a record crowd, but something that changed the future of sports teams worldwide forever. Three hours at TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. He bought his first minor league hockey franchise, but was unhappy with the traditional way games were introduced in that very conservative sport. He decided to do something never done before. Create a game introduction. It became so impressive and inspiring to his crowds and other teams in the league that most were doing it in some form before the season ended. That was only the beginning. The Chicago Bulls heard about it and sent someone to see it. The Michael Jordan era began with a similar show at the opening of their basketball games and the rest was history the idea and concept exploded overnight today sports teams do some version of it all over the world this is just a small part of what super studcast number 25 reveals about a man who knew nothing about hockey when he bought a franchise but would instantly draw the largest crowds in minor league hockey history three hours at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. This Super Studcast is real history. Okay, so where are we going now, Ron? Well, we're going to talk about that new town I mentioned in Kentucky that had never had wrestling before and sold out. Uh, uh, we're to, let's discuss here for a little bit about how do you make new towns sell out? <laughs> you know, I mean... Uh, the one reason it sells out is because we had a great television program and it had been on the air now since March and we're in January. We're 10 months, 11 months, you know, uh, we're eight or nine months at least. I can't, the math don't jump out real quick at that, but, uh, you know, we've had some exposure up there and those people had never seen television wrestling because it were on a weak station. When I went to Knoxville, now we're on this big, powerful station. So these people for months have been watching wrestling and we book it in their town and nobody's ever come to this little town in this little high school gym. And it just did fantastic. I mean, the guys in the crew were like, wow, Ron, where the heck? They would, they, you know, made fun of me. How'd you find this place? You know, but I'd been there and I'd already talked to that high school and that's the reason we were in it. So, uh, 
you know, and and then what happens with a lot of these new towns like this and 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 territories is big territories don't run a lot of little towns because they got major cities. I'm in a small territory. It's going to only have Knoxville, and on Tuesdays it's going to have the you know, Tri Cities area, and I'm going to be consistently running small four towns a week. That's never been a territory probably that's done that. Uh, so. I got to take care of these new towns. They are so good when they're virgin towns like this. I mean, everything that happens in those matches, it's just the fans are just, they're, they're just crazy for it. You don't have to throw punches and you don't have to do things to get tremendous response. Hell, you can uh, shoot a guy into the ropes and he gives you a tackle and the, the building stands up, you know? So I watched the first match and, and I realized that. Gosh, this is unbelievable, man. And, and uh, you know, I had these guys that were thinking, well, we're going to go out there. We're going to do our regular deal. And I had to take my crew and say, guys, hey, wait a minute. Now, we're not going to do that here. We're going to give them wrestling as much as we possibly can. And we're not going to come back here. A lot of territories made the mistake. Nashville. Nick Goulas in Nashville is a classic example of having these towns that he went to that hadn't had wrestling very much, and he would brag about the house. Oh, boy, we did 3,000 people over there in that Rockport, you know, and then uh, he would run it the next week, and, uh, it, and it would drop uh, to 1,500, and he would run it the next week, and it dropped to 750. And and I was like, I, I got to experience some of that. I saw some of that. So I knew that you can't go back there again. You, you, you can't go back there for two months or three months is even better. Give him four shows a year rather than kill it. And he would kill his new potentially big producing spot shows by going there four weeks in a row. They would go from 3,000 people to 300 people because... They didn't really appreciate it. So, and he didn't, never took his wrestlers and said, hey, I want you to do any wrestling. So we really educated these small towns that were about to open up that's not had wrestling before. We didn't go back to them too often. We end up making those small towns, wherever they were in Kentucky, Virginia, wherever it was, draw for years for us because we didn't oversaturate that. We didn't go back too often. Uh, we made guys wrestle. We controlled the heat. I, I didn't want to, you know, uh, Carson, don't load your glove. Hell, don't even hit anybody with your glove. You know, he'd be like, right, I, you know, I got to do my deal. No, you're not going to do your deal here in this town. You do your deal in Knoxville. So uh, I had to uh, educate my crew, and uh, and and we worked able to maintain big crowds in all these buildings and with people that had never seen the show before. So, you know, uh, it's uh, it was critical. It was absolutely critical to be handled that way, or it would have been a disaster if it hadn't have been. Those towns would have gone from sellouts to uh, not enough people that, that you could go back there and run it again, especially since they're small towns. There's not much population there. You can't afford to lose your customers that first night. You go in there and you make an impression, and the impression is wrestling. It's not fighting and kicking and knocking and blood. 
None of that. It's just basic wrestling as much as possible. It worked for me. Ron, it sounds like we're getting awful close to learning tree time here. Yeah, well, uh, that's this one today I think is going to be good. Uh, today's uh, learning tree, we're going to compare the crowds and the TV audiences across the wrestling territories of America in 1976 to the WWE numbers of today. Today we're going to take a close look at what happened to professional wrestling. Uh, we're going to start digging into that question of what happened in professional wrestling. Uh, just uh, let's have a seat under the learning tree here. You know, this will be the second time we've done one of these in 2020. And we're going to look back to 1976, 44 years earlier than 2020 at professional wrestling and compare its talent, attendance and TV audience to what's out there today. Fans of the sport everywhere are aware of what happened in the late 80s that changed wrestling. Uh, but I don't think many of them are aware of what that uh, change did and, and why. Why did that happen? And, you know, it was basically because one greedy promoter decided he wanted to take over wrestling. He wanted to be the man. And, uh, you know, and when you look back at it, my question is, was it a good thing for wrestling fans across the country and around the world? Or was it not? Uh, did it make wrestling more popular? Uh, so the only way to really answer that question is let's just take a look at the numbers. Uh, the numbers don't lie. There's no doubt about that. So let's just begin with the talent in 1976 compared to today's talent in wrestling. Uh, we will in another learning tree. We're going to get into territories and alliances and organizations that were in existence during the same time frame. Uh, but today we're going to tackle the uh, territories and the stars in the territories in 1976. They, there were literally thousands of wrestlers in America alone when uh, this big so-called megas, whatever it is nowadays, uh, you know, when they decided to, to put these wrestlers out of business and these guys that had built these territories for years and years, a lot of them disappeared pretty much overnight. And, and the, you know, not all those guys, thousands of them, not all of them were, were stars, but there were hundreds of these guys that were stars. Let me just talk about the famous families alone. You, you had the Andersons. You had the Armstrongs. You had the Samoan family, the Noyes. You had the Basses. You had the Blanchards. You had the Briscoes, the Colognes, the DiBiase, DiBiase family, the Funks, the Grahams, Ganyas. Uh, Guerreros, Gilberts, Gibsons, Koloffs, Canoodles, the Maivas. You got the Peter Maiva and Rocky Johnson, his son, and the Rock himself. Today, one of the biggest stars in the world. Uh, the Millers, the Ortons, the Orndorfs, Poffos, Pritchards, Rhodes, the Smiths, the Sawyers, Steamboats, Torreses, Valentines, Von Erics, Von Steigers, Wyndhams, and damn the Welches. That were there too, you know, and, and many more that I got to apologize in advance for missing them. But, you know, all of these families, all of these people, their heart, their souls, their whole lives are invested in the sport. And along comes the guy that says, you know, I don't like the way it's set up and I want it all. So uh, then these huge single stars, you know, and I, I'm going to give just a few names, but this list could go, I could spend a whole program doing this. You know, you got Abdullah the Butcher and 
Norvell Austin and Nick Bockwinkle, Buddy Cole, Terry Gordy, Michael Hayes, Black Jack Lanza, Jerry Lawler, Morton, Ricky Morton, uh, Murdoch, Dick Murdoch, Harley Race, uh, Piper, man, Roddy Piper, Bobby Shane, Dick Slater, The Sheik, The Tullus. I mean, you know, it's just amazing what happened uh, within two years or three years. It's all gone. It, all of these guys are just kind of, they disappear. They pick up a few of them out of New York, but they leave thousands of them unemployed. And if you watch today's major wrestling company, I'm not even going to mention the name. They're not worth it. And, and you're lucky enough to know what real talent and interviewers were like in the 70s and 80s compared to what's out there today called wrestlers. And, and the way those the day's wrestlers look and the way they talk, you know what we lost. You know, if you're not old enough to have seen it, you don't realize what it used to be. And, and, and for younger fans out there, I'm, I'm trying to speak to you, too, that didn't have the opportunity to see wrestling in the 70s and 80s. Go to YouTube. By golly, start looking. And you, you I don't know how you can watch 15 minutes of uh, and compare the two companies and go, geez, man, what we got today is much better than it used to be. I mean, it's just not a fact. So for millions of fans from the past, you know, wrestling's dead for millions of them, literally from fans from the 70s and 80s. They don't watch it anymore. They don't care about it. It's not good. There's no quality to it. And uh, the numbers are going to prove that, too. And I've got some of the numbers for you. Ron, did at- I interrupt real quick? Yeah. I'm sorry, because I know you're in the middle of a train of thought here. But, you know, one of the things that makes me, as a longtime wrestling fan, crazy is knowing that in that particular company that you refer to, they script the interviews. You know, yeah. the, bo- the boys are handed a script. And, and I was just sitting there thinking, hey, can you imagine uh, – Going up to a Jody Hamilton or a Don Carson or one of those guys. Uh, uh, here, here's your script, Jody. Uh, this is what I want you to say on an interview. Yeah, well, uh, you know, let's 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 take that the, just that little thought right there to another level. I mean, uh, these guys are pros, and the guys that's writing the scripts, how many matches have they ever had? What the hell do they know about it? You know. So uh, if a guy writes you a script and he doesn't. He doesn't know anything about the, the damn business anyway. How the, could that be better than what came out of Roddy Piper's mouth? Dusty Rhodes. I mean, if you think back about all the great stars and all those fantastic interviews, nobody put anything on paper. Nobody ever put anything. They didn't have to. They could not write the scripts that Dusty Rhodes could do. I mean, uh, it, it's just it's just amazing, that whole part of it. Uh, so, you know, if you look at the critical television audience today, television is the product today. That's, that's all they've got today is their televisions, you know. And uh, if you compare their TV audience today to the TV audience that was watching television in, in 1976, 44 years ago, the only way I can judge it is because I, I lived it. And, uh, you know, I only judge from experience of what my own wrestling companies operating in the southern United States. And we use these rating books of Arbitron and Nielsen that were sent to all the television markets across the country four times a year in the 70s and 80s. Probably, I don't know how long, Nielsen's was probably around from the 50s 
to, I don't know how long, may still be there, but they were very efficient at judging and recording the actual numbers of households that are watching every television station in every market during the entire day from sign on to sign off and uh, just how many homes were watching those, those shows, okay? Then they broke down those numbers. They went beyond that. They broke down those numbers and how many total homes were watching in each hour. And then how many are watching each station in that hour? Then they broke down those numbers into what was called your share of the people, your share of the entire audience that's watching television at the time your wrestling program is on. It gave you your share as compared to everybody else's share. And there were, it was a, everybody that's on at the exact same time. It was a fantastic way of finding numbers. How many people is actually watching your show? So most markets in 1976 had a maximum number of four stations in the market. This is before cable TV. This is uh, before, uh, you know, and, and four TVs in most markets. Now, if you're in New York uh, and, and Chicago and Los Angeles, they may have six or eight there. But obviously, uh, the big city is going to have more. But most cities in America in 1976 had four stations. It was before cable. So these ratings from Arbitron and from Nielsen are correct. So we're now going to compare America's television audience watching wrestling 76 to the numbers reported watching the major wrestling company in America today. I'll call it that. Uh, and I'll, I'll estimate it based upon one small state, Tennessee. And only because I know the numbers from Tennessee. I know what was there. I was in one of those cities, those major markets. There's four major markets in Tennessee, Memphis, Nashville, Knoxville, and Chattanooga. Uh, let's start with Knoxville, the third largest market in Tennessee, and where I got to see all the numbers for myself in these Arbitron books and the Nielsen books. The entire market for Knoxville, from 50 miles south of Knoxville to 125 miles north into Kentucky, had about 200,000 total homes. Each home represented three people per home. 600,000 total people in three states, basically. You had 200,000 homes. That equates to 600,000 people. And three states are watching that Knoxville market's televisions. Okay, on Saturdays at 2 p.m. where my show was, there was about 50,000 total homes watching TV, period. Okay? two o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. So we had a remarkable 80 share of those 50,000 total homes. So that equated to 40,000 homes that we had alone. Eight out of 10 people watching were watching us on Southeastern Wrestling from two to three every Saturday afternoon. Now, three people per household meant that 40,000 homes equates to 120,000 total people watching wrestling on a Saturday in WBIR, Knoxville, Tennessee. Memphis, three times larger market with 600,000 total homes, about 150,000 homes watching uh, every TV on Saturdays. They had a 60 share, darn near as good as ours, and they had 150,000 homes watching. Uh, that equates to 90,000 total homes that are watching wrestling. Of those 90,000, there's that you add that you multiply that by three, you got 270,000 total people watching in Memphis. Uh, you got 120,000 
watching in Knoxville, Nashville, it breaks down to 190,000 people watching Chattanooga, another 80,000 people watching in just four markets in the state of Tennessee alone in 1976. Over 600,000 people every Saturday afternoon watched wrestling. The South was a huge market for wrestling, but if only a, a half as many as that figure watched in the other states, that would, you add that up, it comes out to be well over 15 million people. Between 15 million viewers uh, to 20 million, as high as 20, and I may be underestimating what, who was the actual numbers, but it had to be a minimum of 15 million and maybe as many as 20 million or more. So let's compare that 15 million plus viewers each week in 1976 across America to the major wrestling company in the, in the world today in 2010. Let's just back up and look at it 2010, the comparison with what was uh, watching in 76. Their audience was slightly over 5 million viewers a week when they were doing big television business in 2010. Then, you know, that's, that's 10 million viewers less than was watching in 1976. And uh, now if you take that 2010 figure for, for this major wrestling company, we'll call it, and you break it down, in 2019, that figure had dropped from the 5 million down to 2 million, just over 2 million. So they lost 3 million viewers in nine years alone. You know, in 76, the, the wrestling market was growing. It wasn't dying. It was flourishing. You know, that 15 or 20 million might have been, by 2010, 100 million people watching it, you know, if they'd have left it alone. So, you know, to give it a little more perspective, you know, like I said, they lost that 3 million viewers in nine years alone, uh, meaning that today's major company for television has lost 12 million viewers since 1976. There are 12 million at least viewers less watching television today than there was in 1976. The major wrestling company in the world, I'm about to finish up here, you know, but uh, this to me is personal. <laughs> you know, it, it's personal. It's my, my family's heritage. It's... Uh, it's, it's the Funk's heritage. It's the Rhodes' heritage. It's uh, so many great people and great wrestlers. Their families and their livelihood and their whole lives change. And, and, and what's happened is pitiful. It's just downright pitiful. The major wrestling company in the world, not only did they lose their television audience, they had to drastically cut their live events. They've been doing it for several years in a row. Because they can't draw crowds anymore. They can't draw crowds to their TV show. They have to give those tickets away. They, you look at those buildings when you see those TV shows, there's nobody sitting in the top anymore. They put them all on one side. They do whatever they have to do to make it look like we're big time. This is hugely successful. Don't be fooled. It's not there. Their bodies aren't there. And on their tier shows, uh, their only live events anymore, basically, are their WrestleManias, their pay-per-view programs. Those programs emanate from just one city. And if you really want to see how bad it is, think about the territory days when the, they would just say 20 territories, uh, and they were all running six nights a week, 
and they're packing every darn arena that they're in. That's 6,000 live events per year in, in the 70s for fans who absolutely love their wrestling uh, versus what the hell they got today, you know? Question is, basically now, is what happened? What happened to wrestling? And, uh, you know, I want to thank my learning tree question. The guy that sent me this question is a guy named Larry Hamill for his question. It led me here today, you know, and I'm going to continue this learning tree next week. I'm going to answer that other question. What hell happened to wrestling? And uh, I just appreciate uh, all of these. And I have all of these people that have responded to me about this question, about providing a question for learning tree. And I really appreciate all that. And uh, I'm really looking forward to tearing in next week to, to give you my assessment of what the hell happened to wrestling. All right, Ron, as we begin to do the go-home here, uh, let me encourage everyone to follow Ron Fuller on the Facebook as you can like his page, The Tennessee Stud, and automatically you become friends with the legend. You can follow Ron at on Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. Don't forget, part one of the latest Super Stud cast just released about the Tennessee Stud sport after wrestling. Ron, you want to make a short comment about this? Well, you know, I said a little bit about it before. I think uh, that uh, I did something that, I believe it had a profound effect on sports, period, uh, with the introduction that I did for my Nashville Knights hockey team. Never, ever been done on in hockey before or any other sport that I can find. Uh, in fact, the Chicago Bulls uh, sent somebody to Nashville when uh, Michael Jordan went there, and uh, they took a look at my intro, and they went home, and that's where the Bulls started their every hockey team in the world today. and. Uh, basketball teams. I mean, uh, what I did in 1989 in Nashville, Tennessee with hockey, and it all came from wrestling. That's the great part about it. Uh, The idea and the concept came from wrestling. It changed sport forever. And and I think this studcast, you know, is, I think it will be extremely interesting for fans that uh, can get the tie-in, would like to make a tie-in between wrestling and hockey. Uh, my, my, my experience in my career that I had with this, I think is uh, something that may be interesting to fans, hopefully. Okay, Ron, before we go, I just realized that we had talked about it before we started recording. I want to uh, let you make mention of the fact that this week, uh, we lost uh, a guy that had worked for you in, uh, I believe in Southeastern Charlie Cook. Uh, if you could share with the, uh, the fans, some memories of Charlie Cook. Charlie Cook was a tremendous guy. Uh, He worked for me not just in the first Southeastern Company in Knoxville. He worked for me in the second one in Pensacola. Charlie Cook had so much class about him. He was a tremendous athlete. I don't know how many people know it, but he was a pro football player. He was a great athlete in the ring. And the thing that really stood out more for me about Charlie Cook than anything else was just his demeanor, very soft-spoken and uh, humble and a great worker in the ring. You know, it's a great loss to us. And uh, we're, they come every day now. It's sad. And, uh, and to his family, uh, I wish them uh, the very best. And we lost a great one with him. Okay. So where are we going next week, Ron? Well, we're going to go to the Coliseum for the first show in 1976. Uh, it's going to feature a lights-out match. It's going to feature the semifinals of the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship Tournament. We're going to go to some more of those new cities, like the one I talked about today, that's going to become Southeastern's backbone. 
we're going to talk about other things I learned in 1976 to make it a breakout year. And uh, we're going to, like I said, we're going to continue the learning tree that we started today. And we're going to answer that. That to me, uh, the burning question is, what the hell happened to wrestling? Okay, for Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, and our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, I am Jeff Bowdrin. The Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And until next week, when the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>